Hello and welcome to FilmLock. This is Glenn. I'm here with Daniel. Hello. And tonight we're going to be reviewing the new film by writer-director Jane Campion, The Power of the Dog, which is dropping on Netflix this weekend. But first, we will be checking out the directorial debut of director Halle Berry, who stars as a washed-up MMA fighter in the film Bruised. Yo, that's Jackie Justice, right? She used to be famous. <sighs> Yo, miss, this is you again, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, this probably why she quit. <laughs> what you doing here? Got a nice surprise for you. That's your son. His daddy died. Jackie can't take on again. She's a fighter. That look like a fighter to you. I don't want to fight. I'm happy. You happy scrubbing toilets? That fulfills your purpose? We're strangers right now. But I'm all you got. Sensation fights, no refs, no moves. Look who it is! All the way from UFC, Jackie Justice! You want to fight or run? I know you'd like to run. That's all I wish you did. I'm offering you a second chance. You gonna take it? Yeah, I'm gonna take it. That was from the trailer of Bruised, the new film from director Halle Berry, starring Halle Berry, Shamir Anderson, Adan Kanto, and Sheila Atim. This film dropped on Netflix this past Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and it is a story about a disgraced MMA fighter who uh, left the biz four years ago and is uh, now finding her way back by way of illegal street fights in order to spend time and make money after being reunited with her long-lost son. Joining us this week after far too long an absence is Erica Spoden. Welcome. Oh, thank you for having me back. Yeah, you've been a little busy over the past year. I don't know if you want to get into why on the podcast. And if you don't, I will probably go back and give you a different teed up intro. But yeah, you know, uh, the pleasures and challenges of motherhood. That takes a bit of time. So uh, not many movies in the last year. We're glad to have you back. You know, Erica, what's the going rate for a governess these days? Oh, I mean, it kind of depends if they're a live-in governess. And if you're like providing funds for things like, you know, gloves and and, and bonnets, you know, you, you could be looking at a, a few bags full of shekels. But um, the two films that were... <laughs> Most instructive on this for me were The Sound of Music and Tully. So somewhere in the middle of those two, that's that's probably where. Okay, well, Erica, I think I'm, uh, I'll hit you up on on the DMs about that. I might be in the market for that. Oh, I mean, you really, I mean, it slash she is an investment. Well, folks, Halle Berry directed this film. It was not a movie that was conceived with Halle Berry's involvement, interestingly. Originally, Blake Lively was going to be in the uh, title role, and there were, there were other directors attached at different points. And at a certain point, uh, Halle Berry decided to both star in and direct the film. It stars her as an MMA fighter who was fighting as recently as four years ago. And she also has a child of approximately uh, that age or a little bit. I think he's supposed to be six or seven. He's six. Halle Berry, I'm just going to say right out the gate, is 55 years old and does not look it. Um, I will not speculate as to how or why, but um, suffice to say, I'm not pulling another Dear Evan Hansen here and calling out the uh, casting of the main character as being a distraction here. I thought Halle Berry pretty much worked uh, for playing a character that is approximately 15 years younger than her actual age, which is, which is uh, you know, pretty impressive. But not just for how she looks, but also the extent to which she gets in shape and is able to both inflict and receive uh, convincing brutality in this film. So. So purely as a sports training montage and underdog fight story, I found the movie fairly satisfying. But there is a lot more going on here than that. So, uh, folks, I'll put it to you. Uh, Erica, what did you think of this film? I really did not enjoy this film. I thought it was laden with a lot of tropes to the point that 
I started to see them coming and then they came down the pike and I was like, all right then. I saw exactly that coming. Yeah. You know, whenever I come across a movie and I can see things happening, sometimes it's really satisfying. And this was not one of those times. On the other hand, I think it's it was an interesting story and I can do nothing but, you know, laud Ms. Berry for the effort because it's certainly a tough story. It just wasn't, it's not my favorite movie that I've ever seen. Sort of consciously or unconsciously, I found myself comparing it to like Million Dollar Baby a lot. And I don't know if that's fair or appropriate, but just different contexts. And Daniel, what did you think? Oh, it's definitely Million Dollar Baby meets uh, Rocky 100%. Well, okay. Uh, I'm now curious if we're going to make this comparison. Are you describing it as being akin to Million Dollar Baby insofar as it feels like deliberate awards bait or in some other way that I'm not I'm not keying in on? Female combat sports. I think Ms. Berry was fantastic. However, those who were supporting her, it was very different from like, you know, Mr. Freeman and Eastwood set up. It was really just like the female fighting aspect. Um, and it could be that like the more I think about it, the more I'll be like, this story was really trying to tackle a lot of things and I'll give it more credit for doing that well. I can just say that, you know, I watched this on Thanksgiving and maybe it just didn't make me feel very thankful or happy. I don't know. <laughs> that your life is better than the one that she has gone through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was laden with way too many tropes and way too many cliches. Uh, I agree with you, Erica. I f- you, know, you saw everything coming uh, throughout the film. Uh, all the beats are there. It's way too long. For what it is, you really could truncate this film to an hour and a half pretty easily and not lose like the main story beats. I mean, ultimately, what we're talking about is the battle is truly inside. And I think Danny Boyd had the easiest payday of all time. Like, you have one line in the movie, and you just look sad. Okay, I've got a bone to pick with you on this, because I think that I think that Danny Boy Jr., as, as Manny Jr., uh, Jackie's son, who is dealing with the recent murder of his father in front of his eyes, who does not speak a word until the end of this film... He's his parent. He is absolutely selling the complete upheaval and pain this child is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I agree. I agree, Glenn. Every scene between Jackie and Manny was when I was at my most emotionally invested in this film. So I I will go to war with you over this, Dan. That kid kid did a great job. No, I'm not saying he did a bad job. Did I say he did a bad job? No, I said said it was an easy easy, payday. It was an easy payday. He had to learn a single line of dialogue. Guys, I feel the need to stand up for the tropes here a little bit because you went with Million Dollar Baby as your comparison here. But the film that I found myself comparing this to most heavily was David O. Russell's The Fighter, um, a film starring Mark Wahlberg uh, that came out back in 2010. And it's a film that is absolutely laden with tropes in this in a similar way it is an underdog story it is about somebody working their way up through through boxing it is about somebody's fucked up home family life uh there are at least a couple of featured actors who play various members of his family that are you know clearly vying for some sort of supporting actor nomination wait doesn't that have mr bale in it i believe christian bale's in it as well okay It's a movie I very much enjoyed, and I'm actually with you, Erica. I did not find the experience of watching this movie pleasant, because, man, Jackie Justice has had a rough life, and we learn the complete extent of that over the course of this, and much of that is obviously very cliched. I was with you in at least seeing a lot of those things coming, but the acting still sold it, and and I'm trying to think of what the trope is. It's uh, everybody's fucked up in their own special way, or something along those lines, like... Ah, yes. That's Chekhov. 
Yeah, that's Chekhov, exactly. She may have been through trauma that is commonplace, but it's only commonplace because of how fucking horrible the world is and how how many ways in which people can abuse each other in the same ways over and over again. Like, there's nothing interesting about what happens to her, but that doesn't make it unreal. And as I saw this you know, just from the heart performance from Halle Berry rendering these things and, you know, having to believe that this is an argument that we're seeing for the first time as she's excoriating her own mother over the circumstances of her childhood or as she's hollering at her at her boyfriend slash manager about the way that he's treating her. You know, it's not new, but I have to believe that it's that that her speaking up about these things in the context of this movie is new for this character. And I was still able to get emotionally invested in it on that basis. Well, here, here's what I was viewing it for. So it's a mixed martial arts film. I watch that sport. So how accurate is the film to the real life sport? That, that's what I was paying attention to. I'm going to defer to you on that because you you got me into MMA in a big way, including female MMA in a way that I'd never seen before. The likes of Ronda Rousey, Holly Holm, uh, Joanna Yudrechek, Valentina Shevchenko, who appears in this film. I knew at least a few of these people. <laughs> we have to throw out problematic Gina Carano, who is a pioneer for women's MMA, even though she's has terrible politics and is not a good actress. Ooh, Gina Carano was uh, was in the excellent, uh, well, I'll say this, it's an excellent fighting film, Haywire, in which she throws a bunch of Hollywood leading men around with her powerful legs, but... I really enjoyed her in Haywire, but it could also just be that Haywire was, I thought, a really interesting journey for Soderbergh, and she stayed at a hotel in Dublin that I'm familiar with, and it felt like... I watched it actually not that long into the pandemic beginning, and it was really nice because she goes to all these places, and it felt like a brief window into things. I thought it was fun, or more fun than anything else, so. Yeah, I I guess I haven't seen many MMA films. In fact, I think I maybe have not seen any MMA films. All of the previous sort of fighting underdog films that I have seen were boxing films, um, or they were wrestling films, or they were films with uh, fighting forms that I was that I didn't need all that much familiarity with. MMA, I have not watched it as much as you have, Daniel, but I've watched it at least enough to know some of the basic terminology involved. I knew what a rear naked choke was before it happened. Um, you know, I knew I knew what I knew the importance of the grapple. I knew like like a, a sports training montage in which your your main character is wrestling with a with a limbless dummy on the floor uh, because she needs to practice all of these moves and escapes for the for the ground game. I mean, you described to me as we were starting to watch. MMA for the first time, how much the ground game is a chess match and how much it involves just getting your getting your limbs into just the right positions and getting the better of the other fighter. Just it's a game of inches. And I believed that while watching this, but and I didn't really need that coming in because it's hard to shoot these things in a way that is cinematic. When I'm watching these fights uh, with, you know, brightly lit arenas and cameras just kind of floating up above it's a different experience than i felt while watching the fights that are featured in this film because the camera was able to get up close and personal because these fights were staged because they were stunt choreographed and the like what i'm curious about is as seasoned viewers of mixed martial arts and erica i don't know how your viewership compares to mine i know you've watched it a few times with me but uh i'm curious did these fights feel real to you as you were watching them did they seem like they like they landed well. Could you feel what the flow of the fight was and who was winning? All that, all that sort of thing. Yeah, I did think that they were. Those sequences were filmed well. I can't really comment on anything else, but it was certainly very intense. And you know, I felt it was kind of a neat thing to be in the ring. Sorry, the I know we'll get to spoilers, but I just want to say. If she is, sorry, Russian or Eastern European, then why not just make the character Russian or Eastern European? Because I will say that when she eventually spoke, I was like, no, she's not from, she's not from South America. 
Daniel helpfully informed me that Valentina Shevchenko is from Kyrgyzstan. I, I thought she was from I thought she was Russian, but yeah, although it's a Ukrainian surname, so who knows? But she's playing a character named Lucia Chavez, and yeah, I mean she could rep for a different country than the one she comes from. Daniel also helpfully informed me of that, uh, but there was no clear indication that's what was happening here. So I don't know. Yeah, she does speak Spanish. She speaks, I think, five languages. The the uh, Valentina oh, does. Shevchenko does. Wow. Yeah. Uh, She's fr- she's Ukrainian, born in Kyrgyzstan, represents Peru. Okay, got it. Clearly, she wasn't Argentinian, but yeah, I don't think it was a huge stretch to say she represents Argentina. Kat Zingano was originally going to be in the film, and we don't know what role she was going to be in because this was the subject of a lawsuit, but there are only a couple of fighters in this film. I think she's uh, supposed she- to be Valentina's character. That would be my guess as well. And uh, she apparently got let go at- from her UFC contract because she declined to fight because she wanted to be available for this film. And that didn't work out well. And then they so told her that- we want an active UFC fighter to be part of the film. Uh, so the accuracy, I guess, of the MMA, at least from, from my vantage point, I'm not a diehard fan, but it was good in the final fight. At least it was the best that I've seen represented on film. The early fights were a lot more like Rocky, where it was big haymakers, it was crazy blood flying everywhere, there were headbutts, there were punches to the back of the head, which are illegal, and headbutts are illegal, but fine. Like, that was that was to set the tone in the film. Um, but I think uh, the actual choreography with Valentino was well done. I'm inclined to agree. I mean, I uh, I think that what we got in that scene as well was UFC fight pass announcers describing everything that was happening in the fight and describing it in a pretty kind of hackish and obvious way. And Daniel, let me tell you, the veracity of the UFC announcers being just terrible hacks, the one area where the screenwriting needs to offer deliberately bad dialogue and describe it to these characters who have no idea how to do the job they've been paid millions of dollars to do. So spot on. I didn't mind so much the announcers, but the the corner work was pretty bad. <laughs> like in terms of like you know talking your fighter through, okay, like you're down around. This is what you need to do. I want to see this side of you. I want to see you set up your combos this way. You know, shoot for a double when you get to you know this moment. It was none of that. Was do you want this or not? <laughs> right. And and, that, that, and I'm with I'm with you on that. That was very rocky. Yeah, it was very um, rocky. It was. It, it felt like. If I was the fighter, I'd be like, yeah, that's why I'm here. <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> yeah, Stephen, Stephen McKinley Henderson is a character actor that I quite like. I've seen him in, in just the odd little part here and there. And he plays a guy named Pops, who is just right up in her face, like, it's over, Rocky! Similar sort of so, sort of vibe to that moment of just, you, you gotta want it, Jack. Eric, I have a question for you. Yeah, so, sure. uh, to the child, who is uh, the second best actor in the film here, uh, <laughs> young, young Manny. Young Manny witnessed a murder. Don't you think the cops would want to speak to him about that? I didn't get the impression that they had not spoken to him. What did we hear? Like, so it's like he suddenly just shows up and Jack's mom is like, and he wouldn't say boo. So I can fill in some of the gaps here. Manny Sr. was an undercover cop and he was shot dead by one of the many people he was making cases against in front of his son. So that's what seemed to I'm sure the cops are interested in his killer. It's a little baffling to me that none of them are potentially looking to take charge of his kid. But you know, it's, uh, did, he, did this guy have no no friends? I don't know. I don't. I also don't know how he did vast amounts of undercover work while as a single father. So they didn't give that much thought to his backstory there. He did have a girlfriend who was the one who ended up immediately abandoning the child with his grandmother. So it's easy to see why the kid has a hard time uh, coping in the in the situation because he's he's not exactly thrust into a healthy situation immediately. It goes from bad to worse. 
I don't know. Desi seemed to have it all down. Like he mixed Doritos into a burger. Like it, it's, he has parenting down pat. I will say this for Adan Kanto. This is a guy who starts off with abusive tendencies and then becomes full on abusive. And there's not much of a line between those two things as far as his behaviors go. But the way in which this guy flitted seamlessly back and forth between I'm about to beat the shit out of you and oh, baby, I love you so much. It's a cliche because it's a story that we keep hearing over and over again in real life. You know, nobody sees themselves as the bad guy, even if they've just punched somebody in the face that they claim to be in a loving romantic relationship with. So this is obviously a pretty thankless villain role. And I thought that Kanto did a good job with it. I also, uh, when we're talking about the supporting cast here, Sheila team as Budokan, um, as Bobby Budokan Baroa, I loved this performance. This is from a Ugandan British actress, and uh, she's she's fantastic. Um, she's a character who uh, was, whenever she was on screen, no matter who she was interacting with, I, I had to listen to every word she was saying. I was just wrapped with attention. I don't know. What did you guys think of this performance? Yeah, I feel that. Um, I did find myself thinking that she was another trope, though. What trope specifically, though? The liberal in me is deeply uncomfortable with saying this, but it's called the magical Negro. It's not the first time that we have addressed the possibility of this term on the on the podcast before, but I did not get that sort of vibe from this character. The vibe that I got from it was, this is a character with a deeply fucked up and sad past who has kind of adopted some of the tropes of another of another culture and religion as people sometimes do. And while I think that when you're writing a character named Budokan uh, into your film, it does provoke a certain image, but they really could have cast anybody in this part. And it's all about whether they sell this transformation that a, I was, I was in this place before and B I'm in this separate place now. And by and large, I think this is a character that only worked for me because I liked this performance so much. Um, I am with you that it was tropey, but I wasn't thinking about the tropes when she was doing things like interacting with Manny. You know, this is just a character who I like, you cannot make me like a character more and faster by showing me that they are good with kids. It's just an inherently likable trait, especially in a movie where the kid is just starved for normal human interaction. Action. But in my estimation, that actually it. still kind of feeds into it. Like, there's nothing that she can't do. You know, she's infinitely wise, like the short story, long story thing. You know, the, I'm going to give you a version of my past, but like, you know, hey, you, you know, you leave it out there. I just, there was, it doesn't mean that I didn't like the performance. It's just that it just kept like ringing an alarm bell in my head. I guess I would also say that you, as the family guy that you are, are of course more inclined to enjoy someone who like interacts well with kids. And I agree that somebody needed to be able to do that with Manny because like Jack had like way too much going on in spite of her very best efforts. The one scene that she had where she basically put back tampons so that her kid could get donuts. It's like a really good illustration of the trying that she's doing. But what I wanted to know about, how is it that she had this kid and then trained and got back into the ring and then everything blew apart? It floored me that like this whole thing happened. She got back into fighting shape after having a kid and then there was everything else. Anyway, she had a lot of depth and a lot of despair and any way that she could find to meet her kid like more than halfway was worthy of a round of applause. But where Budokan was concerned, I just... Is it just that we're ascribing these abilities to this character in advance because of the role that she is fulfilling within the story? That she's she's just somebody that we need instrumentally to bring our fighter back to tip-top shape. So obviously she has to be the best at everything. She turned around too quickly. 
For skepticism when first meeting Jack, I kind of wanted to see more of that. And then it was almost like Jack sweated through one workout, Budokan calls her Betty White, and then like the next day it's like, oh, you're great, let's be friends, let's hang out together and eat. And I, I don't know, I felt like maybe there was something missing. Yeah, she won her over too quickly. I, I, I agree. I, I disagree, and I'm going to have to wait until we get into spoilers to talk about why. <laughs> so, fair enough. Uh, I think that there is some depth to this character, and I... Glenn, it's not that I don't think there's depth. I'm just saying it kept exploding in my face that it was something else, that it was more self-serving Sorry, than I was death. not saying there was depth to this character by way of disagreeing with you. I was just trying to find a way to trail off from this point without revealing spoilers. So let's just move on. You're a big fan trailing off. One of the best in the biz. I will say to your point about the uh, about the potential tropiness of this character with, uh, you know, sort of a racially problematic stereotype. I think that I'm not going to say that just because this film has a black woman at the helm that that necessarily inoculates it against the use of a trope like that, especially because, you know, she's not the screenwriter on the film. And it's kind of meeting somebody halfway as far as the di- the dialogue and your direction and what your vision of the film is going to be. So I, I get that um, that's not the end of the discussion as far as as far as that trope goes. But I think for reasons specific to this character, I don't think it fits. And I will I, I will expand more on that in spoilers. Guys, her um, name was Bugacon. What do you expect? I expect Patrick Swayze from Point Break. I mean, the, the guy running Invicta, apparently is named Immaculate. What do you expect from that character? <laughs> well, I don't know that that's his actual name, but I will say there is a scene in a locker room where he just, with the most casualness that I have ever heard a character say, he said, one, I went to prison for murder for 15 years, and two, that was just the one murder I got caught for. And that comes out of fucking nowhere. It's right after a scene where, where Budokan is, ha- is hanging out with uh, with Manny in another location, and all of a sudden we're just in the, the locker room and he's confessing murder by way of explaining that somebody gave me a chance, therefore I'm giving you a chance. And that scene, I, it's well acted. I like Shamir Anderson in this film, but I think that he was kind of just whatever he needed to be from moment to moment as a character. He did not work for me at all. I didn't quite understand how he was running an organization because Invicta's owned by a big corporation. It's not just a minor league like it's depicting in this film. I didn't know how Invicta worked when I was watching the film, but the uh, the impression that I got initially, first of all, I had not heard of Invicta until I looked it up after this but and found out it was a real thing. But I, I took it to mean like he owns a, a club or a gym and he trains fighters for Invicta, and that was just his shorthand way of saying those things. I mean, is that not a thing? Are they not training gyms or MMA stables? Or oh, sure, sure. Yeah, it? there's different gyms, but he it may sound like he may sound like he owned Invicta, like he was the booker for Invicta. I mean, can you prove he's not? Criminal? He <laughs> <laughs> got her a title fight. America, you might not know what Invicta is. Invicta is a all-female MMA company. Oh. So they have different uh, weight classes for females. And, and typically, that's been a feeder league for the UFC. And, like It used to be its own thing, and now it's a direct like feeder league. So the, the women who do really well in Invicta tend to be brought onto the UFC roster. And correct me if I'm wrong, Daniel, but the title fight that they are fighting for in this film, which is flyweight championship, I believe. Yeah, it's 125. Valentina Shevchenko is, in fact, the UFC flyweight champion for women's MMA. Ringing and defending. Shina Mendez are the two best female fighters in the world, period. Nunez is fantastic. Shevchenko, I saw beat uh, Yudrechek uh, back in 2018. I think it was UFC 231, but uh, it's been a while since I've seen her fight. So that was that was. Uh, she's more dominant now at 125 than she ever was at 135. 
Oh, was that where she was previously? Yeah, yeah. Uh, she gotcha. owns one twenty-five. There's nobody. There's nobody skill set wise that's really like close to her. There, there's a couple of people that are you know decent that could give her a good fight, but she's just so much better in every aspect of MMA than anyone else. The training montage that we see included a bit of insane measures to make weight, including her being wrapped in like a warming bag or something. Did I understand that right? Yeah. The, so, real quick. Uh, I was looking for those things, right? Like, yeah, I knew the training was going to be pretty similar to like Rocky training montages, but I was curious as if they were going to show Halle Berry trying to make weight, Jackie Justice trying to make weight. And they did it for like a split second with the bag to like just completely dehydrate you. The thing that annoyed me and a friend of a podcast, Mr. Danny would agree with me is that nutrition was completely bypassed. So Halle Berry, if she was cutting weight, in addition to the high cardio workouts, to lose water weight would have had a very strict nutrition program and in the film she's out having burgers she's going out to eat with her kid like that's not no no you're drinking and the like, diner ends up becoming a sponsor of her in the fight so that's yeah like you're her. you're just drinking a gallon of water and that's that's all your food aside from maybe lean chicken like that's yeah, all I mean, you get i mean Showing the details of, uh, you know, having a dietitian in your film is generally a sign that you failed to appeal to a wide audience. <laughs> I, I don't know of any entertaining films that have a dietitian character. I'm just saying, if it was going to be accurate to life, they have nutritionists. They all work with nutritionists with their fighting camps. In Seabiscuit, they did dwell somewhat on the vomiting that jockeys routinely have to do for the same reason. So, you know, you can, yeah, you you can do it without jockey. dwelling on it. Taking it back to Seabiscuit. I know, right? If you have a fat jockey, that horse don't run. All right, folks. Well, I think we have danced enough around spoilers here. So from here on out, spoilers for Bruised. All right, so let's talk about Budokan. More like uh, Boogie Con. Her, nah, her changes, nah. <laughs> her changes in attitude are, in my opinion, they are justified by the script. I th- uh, are so they justified because she's, skept- she's she falls in love with someone whose last name is Justice Glenn. Ha! She wanted to get herself justified. <laughs> I think that the turn that we have here is she misses some training, and then Immaculate and Immaculate was supposed to be coming and seeing her at the gym, so he's fucking pissed because he's sponsoring her training and all of that, and. Uh, she comes back in and she's training the next day and Immaculate comes into the ring, berates her in front of everyone and says, hey, you're, what was the term? A tomato can, right? Yes. You're there to lose. You're there to do three convincing rounds and lose. And you won't last 30 seconds against her if you don't, if, you know, if you don't train properly in my gym. So don't fuck around. You're there so that, <laughs> I, I guess the assumption is that he, at best, the assumption is that he thinks that she will lose. At worst, the assumption is that he's actively corrupt and, his, and is fixing the fight in some way. I took it as he was trying to motivate her by saying, I brought you in to get your ass kicked and you're not even going to do that well. Yeah. Uh, so I, that's how I read that scene. I, I read it as that as well. I don't think he was actually doing any sort of mob shit or we would have seen greater pressure on her to throw the fight. At no point did he tell her to do that. But that, to me, was the beginning of the turnaround with Budokan wanting her to train harder and also it was the beginning of her wanting to train harder so those two things happened in parallel and they happened because of and i'm, I'm with you it's a well-worn underdog trope you were brought in here to give an entertaining fight and lose and so you're going to surprise everybody by whooping her ass and winning i'm with you on that being a trope the fact that she ends up losing by split decision was an interesting narrative choice i don't know how well it subverts that at all but you know she at least gave her a good fight 
And then, of course, we have the romance here. So to what extent did the romance work for you guys? Uh, saw it coming. Wasn't really that satisfied. And then, like, because apparently I'm very female and, like, changeable. Um, then when, you know, Jackie was like, I need to do this alone. It was like, ah, it's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> ti- it's terrible timing, Jackie. Wait until after your fight. Come on, Jackie Justice. I, I know. I, cle- I clearly just, you know, wanted it yeah. both ways. Like, I could see it, but I didn't like it. And I, I also, I'm just never a fan of anyone anywhere in Atlantic City talking about how beautiful it is. Are you fucking kidding me thank you it is new fucking jersey Jersey. are you fucking kidding me no one plans no one aspires to live in atlantic fucking city oh snap i'm done i thought the title fight was well choreographed i thought that it was interesting they went with a split decision loss like glenn said uh mostly because a judge scored the fight for jackie justice uh so great like, and then they showed, like, a different grappling techniques. I did think it was amusing that they said that Jackie's uh, strength was on the ground when in the beginning of her training montage, she didn't seem to have any idea how to do a takedown or, or work any sort of submissions, but sure. Yeah, she just beat the shit out of a fighter who outweighed her by, like, 140 pounds. By headbutting <laughs> her repeatedly, yeah. Whatever. Like, fine. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I thought the choreography was good. I thought the split decision was interesting. I laughed aloud when she got a standing ovation from the crowd. And I was like, oh, yes, you won by competing. Like, every trope. Fine. Invicta felt small. Like, you would have really had, like, thousands of people. Like, not 10,000, but maybe, like, three or 4,000 in that crowd. And I was like, there was maybe 50 to 100 people in the crowd. So, like, it felt a little small stakes. Yeah, I don't know when this fight was shot, but if COVID was a factor here, I know the nom- the movie uh, on IMDb is listed as a 2020 title, so that probably means it was shot in like 2019 or 2020, something like that, so who knows. It seems fairly clear that whenever they were shooting the close-ups of them in the ring, there was no actual audience there, and it was all blacked out in the background, so you couldn't really see it. That was kind of the one area in which it strained credulity for me, because I've watched UFC fights that are televised, and you can always see the audience, um, and here we could just kind of hear the audience. I don't really know how else to shoot that, except to have a real audience there 100% of the time, and that maybe just makes it a lot more expensive, so I, I I don't know. I didn't need that so much, because they did a good job of keeping the focus on the fighters and what the experience was. I mean, there's one shot just where the camera's kind of underneath one of them as, as kind of the grappling moves are happening, and it's, and it's just you can hear... All of a sudden, the crowd noise is gone for a split second. It was a great, great moment of sound editing there. You just hear the women kind of grunting as they're just trying to get the better of each other. And then we're back in the full fight and we've got the full crowd noise again. But it was just a ni- it was just a nice reminder that this is just two, you know, two humans smacking each other and really experiencing this in reality. So I groaned when Angel was watching the uh, the fight live. Because I was waiting really? for like them to switch over to Desi, also cheering her on, and then switch over to Bugacon, also cheering her on. Desi dropping out of the film after he beats the shit out of her in the hallway, I thought was a perfectly fine choice. Yeah, no, I didn't, wa- I didn't want to see that again. That guy does not deserve an ending. Well, folks, that's about all I've got here. I, I, I think I am. I'm not sure how well the whole package fits together, so I'm kind of with you on some of these criticisms that, A, it's very tropey, and B, I think that the tone of the movie was kind of all over the place, but I never really lost the thread of who this main character was and what motivated her. And in the end, that was kind of enough for me. 
like it just kept getting worse for her. But I, I at least believed that there were some things that mattered to her. And that explained why she was continuing on this very painful and self-destructive path. And that was enough to keep me interested in the film, even even as it was, you know, two hours and 10 minutes long. I, I'm with you, Daniel. I felt the length of it. There were moments where I was like, God, there's 45 minutes left of this film and we haven't even gotten to the fight yet. Like, how? How is it so long? Why is her mother like, why are they throwing out this like rape charge against her mother? Like for an hour and 45 into the film? Like, stop it. You already have enough layers. And again, the acting sold the moment for me. It's a horrible fucking reveal, but it explains a lot about this person, that this is what her relationship is with her mother at this point. Um, I'm not sure, like, she thinks that her mother had to have known, but I get the feeling this is not a conversation they've ever had before. I hate to say it, but I kind of call bullshit on that, because it just seemed to me there's... On which part of it? That they've never talked about it before? Yeah. Or that no, it I kind that it's just then coming up. Like, I don't, I don't I see, see, I don't see that happening. Like, Jackie is, is not young, and that was not, like, a penthouse apartment. I don't buy that, it, like, they, she just, I don't know, waited that long to bring it up. Notwithstanding the fact that the character is supposed to be 40 years old. Yeah. Or thereabouts. Uh, I mean, e- even so, that does seem like a long time to wait to bring that up. I'm with you on that. I mean, did it make you uncomfortable just because it's a very upsetting allegation that she's making or because it seemed like the movie was kind of exploiting a, uh, a a disturbing trope in a way that did not feel justified in the script? Definitely the latter. By that point, it was almost like the scene began and I was like, oh, yeah, she's been assaulted, hasn't she, by like a close family member and probably multiple people. Yeah. And then it came out and it was like, well, this is just terrible. And literally the first note that I made when I started this movie was this is about how women get used. And that really just kind of kept coming up like again and again throughout the movie for me. So that's probably like another thing that I didn't care for about it was like, not that it's not like a relevant story, not that it isn't like happening every day in ways far worse and less cinematically gratifying than this. But it's just, there's even like tiny things like when she first beats the shit out of a Russian in like a fighting den, we'll call it. And, you know, she's with her piece of shit manager slash boyfriend, because of course, he's her manager slash boyfriend. And then you have these two men basically talking over her, deciding her future. And there was just enough crap like that, that it was just like, this is asinine and I don't like it. It's carpet bagging and wine steaming in one place. Done. Yeah, I mean, the idea of two men negotiating over the future of her and somebody who's her boyfriend slash manager, I mean, negotiating for how she's going to use her body to make money. It's a pretty obvious comparison that they're making here, especially the extent to which it's an underground Russian mafia influenced operation here. And I was like, I can do a more convincing Russian accent. You can't tell me they didn't couldn't just go to Coney Island and find a Russian who would say a couple of lines. Like, don't understand. I will keep coming back to this. You found this movie unpleasant. I understand that. But did you think that there was any purpose in telling such an unpleasant story? Or were you simply taken out of it because the story did not seem uh, sincere to you? Or I, I guess I'm trying to zero in on what the issue was with this. Because merely being disturbing is not enough to make me dislike a film. It might be enough to make me not want to watch it again. But it's not necessarily going to make me think the movie is bad. Because when it comes down to it, there are people who've been through these things. And those people want to tell their stories. And that's that's how we that's how we get a lot of the most fucked up fiction that exists in the world. So I, I understand not liking it. I understand not wanting to go through it. But I guess, did it seem like a valid storytelling choice? Or did it seem like they were just piling it on to make you feel worse? Yeah, I'm going to go with piling it on to make me feel worse, to the point that it just was completely unbelievable and just not really well thought out. Because you can have a couple of tropes, 
for example, like you were talking about with like the almost win, that was an interesting choice because I was going to assume that they were just going to go for the third straight hat trick and have her win, even though it, it was not plausible at all. The slow-mo blood spitting knockout. <laughs> right. So I guess it was the combination of just like way too much that I could see coming and then just because of that not feeling very invested and then just being made kind of in general uncomfortable by it, which is maybe not, it's not a bad thing to be made uncomfortable by a movie. Many movies that I love that have made me uncomfortable, but it was that plus it just did not seem that original and I wanted to believe in it a little bit more than I did. Yeah, I think for uh, Halle Berry's directorial debut, she did an overall pretty good job. I mean, it's difficult to direct a film and also be the star. And like those are two very separate roles. And the amount of training that she had to do to be physically capable of doing the different stunt work must have been pretty intense. So I definitely commend her on that effort because it, it was clear that she put in the time and effort to do, to do a good job. I feel like it has added way too many layers to try to broaden the appeal from this being a fighting movie to a movie, like an underdog film that everyone can kind of identify with. I didn't care about the kid. He's cute. Didn't care. Didn't care about the abusive boyfriend. He's an idiot. Didn't care. I wanted to know how is this going to be as an MMA film as someone who watches MMA. Like, how true a life is it? And it was maybe like 60-70% there. I, I, I feel like Medically, she never would have been cleared to fight uh, because she was always beaten up <laughs> uh, before beforehand. I don't think a doctor clears her. The nutrition, never would have made weight. Fine. You're not being Valentina in a fight. Zach's fine. Like, we can gloss over that. Yeah, I was going to say, you kind of have to go with suspension of disbelief on that one. Just like every time either, you know, Gina Carano or um, uh, I want to say Rousey showed up as well in Fast and Furious. Because we need somebody from Michelle Rodriguez to fight. Um, And so they brought brought in a number of female MMA fighters for that purpose. But uh, yeah, you just just got to... Somebody's there to be the heavy, as they say. And right, and so I I suspended my disbelief enough that I kind of felt like... If the movie were shorter, I would have liked it. I just felt like the length of the film and all the different layers they tried to add on just didn't add up for me. So I would say, you know, Glenn, you seem to like it. And Erica, you and I kind of had a similar opinion on the film. So I'd say this is a split decision loss for a Bruce. Get Glenn, because that's what happened in the movie. I'm referencing the movie. And hopefully this podcast will also be narratively satisfying. Well, if you have any feedback on our discussion of Bruised, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. And now on to a review of The Power of the Dog. 25 years since our first run together. 1900 and nothing. It's a long time. What's it doing? Getting mixed up with her. You are marvelous, Rose. We were married Sunday. little lady made these i did sir open up the gate let him out you sure he's not ready go on let him out it's just a man peter only another man 
That was from the trailer of The Power of the Dog, the new film written for the screen and directed by Jane Campion based on the 1960s novel by Thomas Savage, starring Benedict Cumberbatch, Kirsten Dunst, Jesse Plemons, and Cody Smith-McPhee. This film takes place in Montana in 1925 on a cattle ranch where two wealthy brothers who take pains to tell us in the opening scene that they've been doing this for exactly 25 years together. They become involved with a uh, with a young widow and her son, uh, played by Kirsten Dunst and Cody Smith-McPhee. One of them becomes uh, smitten with her. And, uh, and it is uh, kind of just about how that changes the entire group and family dynamic. Uh, because Phil Burbank, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, is a man of deep rage and many insecurities. And uh, to the extent this film functions as a character study of cowboy masculinity circa 1925, that is essentially the focus of it. So, folks, I will put it to you. What did you think of this film? Daniel, I'll start with you this time. I hang every second on this film. <laughs> I could not tell you how angry I was watching it. I hate it. I, I thought the performances were good. Not taking anything away from the actual effort of the actors to put together these characters and put forth the emotional toll that uh, Montana could put on a person, but I hate everything <laughs> about it. I couldn't wait for it to be done. I didn't like any of the characters, didn't like the story. Uh, all the animal violence really frustrated me and, and pissed me off, and I was just waiting for them all to die. That was my take on it. <laughs> Yeah, Eric, it was purely accidental that we brought you on here for, uh, I mean, we, we brought you in for the first cow in the Oregon Territory. This is, I guess, maybe one of the last cows in the Montana Territory because they sure do kill a lot of cows in uh, in this film. Uh, and Daniel, I didn't really know what this movie was about apart from being a Western before we teed it up. If I'd known there'd be this much violence upon animals, I probably would have given you a bit of warning beforehand. So, You know, I, I read real Westerns, and by real Westerns, I mean just childish, silly Westerns, like... The Last of the Mountain Man series. I've read. Uh, I've read one of those eight hundred books. Um, I'm on the second one, which is a Christmas tale, and there's pure candy because this is how every scene starts. Smoke Jensen's the main character. He never misses with his pistol. He's he's you know e- you know effortless in killing people, but he's a good guy. And he'll run to somebody, and they'll get into some sort of verbal argument, and then they'll be like, "What the hell you say?" And then they shoot each other. It's fantastic. I could be wrong, but I'm not sure there is a single handgun in this film. Am I right about this? I don't think there is. Which is interesting. I can't believe I didn't pick up on that. Yeah, I don't think you see. Even First Cow had some guns in it. Like I, I would expect the guns to just be present at least. I would, I, you know, I wouldn't uh, necessarily expect there to be gun fights. It's not really. It seems like this place is a little bit more civilized. Like they've got cars and everything. Um, it being 1925 and all, but they're still in a rural, not so developed part of Montana. Um. Erica, what did you think of this film? I enjoyed this movie for the most part because it was simply stunning and heartbreaking and big, grandiose words like that. It's it's always nice to see Kirsten Dunst do anything. For me, this kind of was an interesting bookend to thinking about one of the last times I would have seen her would have been uh, Melancholia. So I kept kind of like mm. countermanding those two things. Um, I've, I've really enjoyed seeing Jesse Plemons like just take on so many different roles and, you know, do them well. And in this movie, he has a mustache and actually doesn't seem like a porn star. So that's almost a whole other, like, acting level. You know, the batch is always fun. Undoubtedly, the thing that bothered me the most also was the animal violence and actually wondering, like, how on earth did they, like, beat a horse without actually beating a horse? So. Yep. Thought that too. 
I just have to trust in the animal welfare authorities of these respective countries at this point. I'm going to assume that whipping a horse is not something that is allowed in New Zealand. That's all I can go with on this. We have very good CGI at this point. It is possible to simulate these things without actually harming an animal. In the same way that Mel Gibson stabbing a horse with the American flag and the Patriot was accomplished with prosthetics, I'm sure they figured out a way to do this in the year of our Lord 2021. Sure. Doesn't mean we want to say it. I understand being disturbed by it. I understand not wanting to see it, but I did not perceive that I was viewing a, an actual IRL moral outrage as I was watching these things. That's one line I want to go ahead and draw here, because I will not be defending this film too vociferously beyond that. Uh, Peter Gordon, uh, played by uh, uh, Coe Smith McPhee, is a creepy little bastard, and uh, I, hang, I hang him quite a bit. He's a physician in training, and uh, yeah, physicians in training at the turn of the 20th century and for a while thereafter were definitely creepy bastards as a requirement of their trade. I mean, they would often, there were various local laws against desecrating human remains and they couldn't practice on corpses. There was not really much of a framework for donating your body to science. So if they wanted to practice surgery, they had to do it on animals. And obviously, I can understand finding that disturbing and i can understand even in the context of the film we have thomas and mckenzie who is barely in this film an actress that i hold in very high regard as is just there as a maid uh in this film probably because it's new zealand and you know there was work to be had she just is there to walk in on him dissecting a rabbit in one scene I agree. He handled that in a very creepy way. Like, even I'm dissecting this rabbit for legitimate scientific reasons is probably something he could have conveyed to her from across the room before she was exposed to it herself. Um, So that guy is creepy and is definitely presented as creepy or at least a little off-putting and not quite capable of reading people. But generally speaking, he and his mother get along and and his mother likes him the way that he is and encourages him to do what he wants. Well, I didn't like the way he was and and (laughs) I didn't like seeing him on the screen. Fair. Eric, I have a curious little moment of synchronicity for you. I actually watched another film in theaters this past week, uh, Spencer, the biography of Princess Diana. And uh, that is a film that also had a Johnny Greenwood score. Mm. And I found myself comparing it to Melancholia because it is also a movie about a, that centers around a character who is just right on the verge of losing their shit. Mm. The movie centers on Princess Diana when she is basically on the verge. Of, she's she's gotten fed up with her husband, Prince Charles's affairs, and is on the verge of deciding to leave the royal family for good. And it's basically over the winter in this one particular Christmas in the early 90s. And it's her just reaching her wits end when it comes to dealing with all the ceremony and pomp surrounding the royal family because she just does not want to be a part of it and she wants to get herself and her children away from it. And it is, I I must add, completely fictionalized. It is not based on anyone's memoir. It's not based on anyone's actual accounts. It's just this, it's it's much like watching um, Aaron Sorkin's film about Steve Jobs where they basically just took a public figure and used it to tell the allegorical story they wanted to tell. So I don't look at this as a biography of Princess Diana per se, but it's a film that I had a very similar reaction to as I did to Melancholia, which is that you can make a film about a central performance with a character that is just on the verge of breaking down completely. And to watch another film with another Johnny Greenwood score in the same week, which also has a central character played by The Batch, as you horrifyingly called Okay, you say that you don't like it. I think on some level you do. I mean, is it really any worse than if I were to describe myself as a cumber bitch? Absolutely not. <laughs> and P.S., I wouldn't because that's terrible. 
here was my problem with this film. It is not that I minded that it centered on this horrifically unlikable character. And it's not even the, pro- I did not even have the same problem as Daniel, which is that he didn't find any of the other characters likable either. I pity you having to watch this entire, all two hours and nine minutes of this movie, not liking a single character. Uh, the only character I, I kind of liked was George Burbank, played by Jesse Plemons. It's fair, and he is the most overtly likable in the thing, but to the extent that he's an He's allowing bad things to happen around him and just kind of turning a blind eye to them. It actually makes him a little bit less likable in my eyes. No, my problem with this movie was not that it centered around a character who was on the verge of breaking down in a way that was very much sold by the performance and also the musical score accompanying it. It was that for the first probably third of this movie, it was not at all clear that Phil was the main character. And I think this movie's narrative focus left something to be desired because it just kind of jumped forward in time and all, it all of a sudden... Jesse Plemons, George, is pursuing Kirsten Dunst. All of a sudden, oh, he's there now. Oh, they're getting married now. Oh, they're moving into the ranch now. And we're just kind of jumping forward, and I don't really know what's changed, how we're supposed to feel about it, and to what extent uh, Phil's treatment of these characters informs their later actions. Because we see that Rose is not getting along well with Phil, and Phil flat out calls her a a lowly schemer and is very transparent that he thinks that she's just after the family money and is uh, going to abscond with it uh, for for her kid from from some other guy. So, but I never never really latched onto that until maybe the second half of the film. So the movie just kind of feels like it's flailing for the first half. Like, what, what is this about? Why did you try to tell this story? And the fact that that came into focus in the second half does not really save it for me. It makes the movie just kind of an unpleasant slog for much of its runtime. Huh. All right. Well, she stands alone. I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> By split decision. <laughs> I'm curious, Erica, how would you compare it to Phantom Thread, another movie that we reviewed here on the podcast? Well, Phantom Thread was definitely more fun um, because you have a character who's also a bastard, but he has some really great one-liners, and then the costumes are just stunning. That was fun and beautiful, and yeah, and I mean, you know, maybe maybe it's the, the, the DDL factor, I don't know. You know, his sister in it was just, I mean, just a really... Yeah, these these are these are good comparisons, Glenn. But I don't recall when I watched it just today thinking that there was something you felt kind of like there was like the rug was being pulled out from under you in terms of who the character was or who you're supposed to be following. I actually thought it was kind of an interesting counterweight to Bright Star, which is the last Jane Campion movie that I saw. And Bright Star is about um, the life of John Keats and like this woman that he falls in love with, played by Abby Cornish. Um, and then like his kind of like, it, like moseys very eventually into his, like, you know, his death in, uh, it's not Venice, but it is in Italy for sure, um, of TB. And yeah, it's a very kind of meandering, it feels kind of purposeless. I mean, there's some very pretty like outdoor scenes, which actually in hindsight kind of remind me of one of the Twilight movies. No, I did not just compare Jane Campion to Twilight, except that I kind of did. They did come out around the same time, I believe. <laughs> She's quite capable of putting together a really beautiful image that seems timeless. And that's, I mean, I think there's a reason. I feel like she must have been, if not the first and one of the first women to be nominated for a best um, for best director. Jane Campion has, has won an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. That too, that for the piano, yeah. So um, I would have expected this movie to feel slower because of Bright Star, and it really didn't. And I, I kind of liked that... 
you know, you kind of begin that you have this tale of two brothers. In my notes, I was kind of like Cain and Abel, question mark, because honestly, that's more the direction I thought it might have gone in. That was okay. I kind of liked that it was sort of like this, not love triangle, but like this kind of love contention, which, you know, can totally tear families apart. I liked that George is kind of in the background because George wants to go forward in time and Phil just kind of wants to stay stuck. He wants to talk about Bronco Henry, was that it? Bronco Henry. Bronco Henry, who was his mentor, who was somebody that he had an intense relationship with. It was somebody that he may have been romantically involved with. We don't really know. Well, we know. I think that we need to get into spoilers here before we talk about uh, the end. But, you know, Bronco Henry is dead and buried at the beginning of this film. He's been dead for 20 years. So whatever this guy is living with, it's part of part of the extent to which he treats everybody poorly is because, uh, you know, he, he's comparing everybody constantly to this this paragon of ranching that uh, that he came up with and does not want to let go. So that's a bummer, I guess. But uh, I will say the movie definitely announced its purpose loud and clear by the third act. And, and the third act kind of worked for me, even though the rest of the movie felt kind of meandering to me um i think purposeless is a good way to to put it i think that a movie that takes its time to reveal its purpose can work better for me than this uh and i think that phantom threat is a good example of that as is melancholia um films where there's just kind of a lot of unpleasantness that you're stewing in for most of the film and it's not exactly clear why phantom thread and in, in, in the case of that film there were the quips there were the costumes there was a lot to latch on to melancholia there was the fact that i've willingly chosen to watch a lars von trier film so i kind of know what i'm getting going into that and every once in a while he'll he'll bust out something like nymphomaniac and really surprise me with something that's actually pretty entertaining all the way through so um the uh so i think there was more to latch onto in those films but i certainly understand why this the way in which this film can work for you even though it didn't work for me in the same way well should we get into spoilers then yeah sure unless daniel has more hatred he'd like to release i'll release that during spoilers all right fair enough all right well um well the Power of the Dog drops on Netflix this weekend. It is in theaters now uh, if you want to check it out. And I'm actually with Erica that this film is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, the cinematography from Ari Wagner really makes the uh, the prairies and mountains of... Are we in Montana? Do we, do we think that's where this was? And in fact, it was New Zealand. What tipped it off? Uh, the mountains looked wrong to me. The mountains did look wrong. Like, they weren't as dramatic. I mean, it was... You can say in the back of your head, okay, Jane Campion is from New Zealand. It's probably in New Zealand, but you know. Um. Yeah, that that was that was my assumption going in. I had seen Top of the Lake. It's actually the only Jane Campion thing that I've seen prior to this, and it was all shot in New Zealand. So I kind of just assumed uh, that that was where it was filmed, but I, I didn't really know. I will say I had a thought, much like Erica, you had that moment of like, this just looks like New Zealand. I had a moment where I was like, these cows seem like the wrong cows for North America. Hmm. <laughs> Between that and the hills, just the hills and mountains looking a little bit wrong to me being in the pacific northwest uh was enough for me but it's like this looks a little too volcanic for montana mm. in any case it's a very pretty looking film absolutely um it I agree makes, with that. makes great use of its outdoor locale and it makes very kind of selective use of cgi in ways that, that i think works pretty well sometimes in ways to depict horrific things happening to animals but also i mean i think every exterior of the farmhouse and the ranch was entirely cgi but it was done subtly enough that it's not at all obvious um there there is very occasional use of drone cinematography but not in a way that feels out of place in a western it feels like a decent blend of the old and the new in terms of the filmmaking in a way that largely worked for me give the movie some credit for that but uh yeah now we need to talk more about the third act so from here on out spoilers for the power of the dog Honor! 
So I couldn't be too specific about how much this reminded me of Phantom Thread. And uh, I will go ahead and say uh, possibly vague spoilers for Phantom Thread coming up here. But we're in a situation here where it turns out that a character ends up secretly poisoning another. So um, I'll I'll put this to you guys. Uh, To what extent did you see this ending coming? Like, I, I expected something bad to happen to one or more of these characters. I just wasn't sure who was going to do it and who was going to be on the receiving end of it. It set it up in a way that it really could have collided in any different way. So I'm curious whether this... this it really was a lot like that. a game of Clue. But uh, I honestly think that I was really impressed with the fact that from the first interaction that you see between Peter and Phil, that you, or at least I, remember thinking he's going to let this, like Peter's going to let this totally destroy him. He's never going to be able to be around this guy without wanting to snivel or whatever. And I was kind of like, I mean, maybe not good on you, but it was like, oh, okay. There came a moment when they were like, right before he offers to give him the rawhide and he had this look in his eye and it's like, oh, okay. He really, really never forgave him and he's going to make him die. This guy has had quite a career because like he was the kid in the road and he was also in whatever the English version of Let the Right One In. Oh, he was in Let Me In. That's right. He's fantastic. He was also the title character in Paranorman, the Leica film, the animated film. And he was in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and he was Nightcrawler in one of the in a couple of the X Men films. There we go. He's played a lot of creepy uh, shadow dwellers, but I, I will say this for Cody Smith McPhee here in this film is that even as he's he's in his mother's inn and he's waiting on the customers there, and everybody's being rowdy, everybody's being drunk. Rose is clearly getting upset by it initially because you know these men are being rowdy and drunk in her place, and it's it's bad for business, but also because. She's got her own issues with the sauce that that become manifest over the course of the film. But I like that Peter, from the moment that we meet him in the film, feels fairly self-possessed and self-assured to me. He's got he's got characteristics that make him an object of ridicule in this world. That's very much true. But it seems like he's used to it, and it seems like he's used to at least pushing back on it a little bit. There's a moment where they're making fun of him for the way that he holds his cloth, uh, because I guess he holds a... He holds a napkin in a gay way or whatever. I don't I don't know what's meant to be conveyed there, but um, there, you know, there are a lot of old timey stereotypes about masculinity that have to do with how you move your hands around, whether you've got a firm handshake, whether you're bending your wrist too much or whatever else. And all of it is bullshit, obviously. But um, the fact that they focused on how he had a, a, a cloth napkin draped over his arm in order to catch the spills from wine, it's like. Look around, you guys. Like, like, be happy you're in a place that serves fucking wine by the glass. Like, the Old West is done. You're not in a saloon for a sarsaparilla here. You're in a place where they've got a house red. Like, be, be fucking classy about it. And that seemed like what was being conveyed by him not just retreating to the kitchen in that moment, but actually explaining, like, hey, this is how these things are done now. <laughs> so, what's the big deal? Um, so, yeah, it, this is a performance that largely worked for me. Um, but even, even if there was not enough focus on this character for me to latch onto it too much. Well, I think his relationship, uh, Peter Gordon's with Phil, uh, why it worked well was you never really got a sense as to who was predator and who was prey because Peter finds the gay pornography that uh, Phil has stashed in his little grove and he doesn't use it as leverage overtly. He just uses it as, well, this is something I know about you, and I'm going to leave some things unsaid and kind of tempt you a little bit to see where this relationship goes, to which I could use against you later. Uh, and Phil, not knowing that his pornography was uh, uh, you know, identified, uh, is definitely taking on a, I'm going to groom you with this braided rope that I'm making for you uh, to seduce you somehow. 
That is a very interesting read on what happened. I'm not going to say that you're wrong, but I will say that is not the read that I had on on that that moment. Um, my interpretation of, of when he follows him to his secret little tree tunnel at, where he covers himself in mud and bathes in the in the pond and uh, and hangs out with, I, I, I guess, I guess Bronco. Bronco uh, Henry, Bronco, Bronco Henry. <laughs> the sexiest cowboy of all time. <laughs> When he drapes Bronco Henry's, uh, I, I guess, handkerchief over himself yeah. as a way of remembering Tuck his smell himself. and remembering the feel. Like, that kind of answered the question as to whether he and Bronco were romantically involved, or at least he was romantically interested in Bronco. We don't know. And we also know that they laid naked together at one point to stay warm on the prairie. So probably something reciprocated there. The other interesting detail of that is if we're going back to uh, if we're going back to 1904, because that is when Bronco died, uh, that would have made Phil like maybe 19 or 20 years old if we're going back 25 years. So it's not exactly predatory because at least he's not a child, but he's got basically a 50 year old man uh, putting the moves on him. There's a sort of parallel between what is happening between him and Peter and what was happening between Bronco Henry and him that I think is simply brought up, remarked upon and never made explicit because I think for the same, for the reason that you, that you identified there, that Peter is never clearly predator or prey. It seems like he might have control over the situation or he might not. Now my interpretation of the rope and the fact that, Phil was all of a sudden interested in being friends and making this rope and taking him out to know how to use it. No, I took it to mean that he was going to murder him with it and that making the rope was because he was going to he was going to take him out and hang him on from a tree on the prairie or something like that. No, I never got that sense. And that scene where, you know, they are staying at um, uh, Rose's, well, I guess, boarding house and they focus on, you know, when Phil goes in the room and he goes to, like, you know, sleep in the bed. And it shows you, like, the part, like, the window that would have been used in the event of fire. And it really focuses on the rope there. And I was like, that rope's coming back. We're just not sure who it's going to be for. Yeah, I mean, between that and the, we, we see a dead cow on the prairie in the opening scene. And one of the first lines that Phil has is, stay away from that dead cow, anthrax alert. So I, I was definitely prepared for the anthrax to come back. Yeah, it's the Logan gun. Instrument. It's the loaded yeah. gun in the film. It's the, it's the anthrax in the first act. That one was Chekhov. Um, but uh, I didn't see the exact disposition of this character coming, and I certainly did not see Peter as being the instrument of that. I felt like Phil had had an open wound for much of what they were doing, and it kept, it kept just not being sanitary. Not like He was dunking it in the as they were tanning the rope. He was putting, it in, putting his hand in the same water. Um, at one point, somebody even comments on his lack of gloves. <laughs> it seems like he was inviting the Grim Reaper in. <laughs> Well, so yeah. the whole reason why he has that open wound is because inexplicably, him and uh, Peter decide we're going to go torture this rabbit, and he got a splinter in his hand. That's where it came from. Yeah, it was pretty random, though. All of a sudden, he's just, like, bleeding profusely from his hand. So, uh, But I, I, I did not note the significance of that as it was happening. So, I think it's just, like, a bigger <sighs> metaphor for his entire character. He just has this, like this great big open wound and sometimes it kind of like seeps rage and other times it's you know something that's a little bit murkier yeah that's a good way of viewing it and incidentally not that it really matters that much but the magazines that he finds in the little tree hidey hole which was great by the way i i want i want a little place like that in the woods I did not actually read that as porn for the reason that at the turn of the century 
the cult of masculinity was alive and well in Britain and in the United mm. States. And like that was when gymnasiums were first like, well, fine, not first, like obviously they were they were first big in Greece, but there was this there became this obsession and at the turn of the last century before World War One with like the ideal masculine form. And so there actually were yeah. publications about this and like, okay, fine. You can't say that like they weren't like they wouldn't have had pornographic uses, but it was more about like, this is what you should look like as a man, get you to the gym, start you some boxing. And you know, this is what will happen. So I am actually with you on this, Erica. There were some naked men in those shots, but none of it was sexually explicit. It was all men in bodybuilding type poses. Um, and there seemed to be accompanying articles and things like that. So it, it seemed like these were this was the equivalent of like a men's health magazine just with, with burly dudes posing or whatever. And, you know, Phil was clearly reading it for the articles. <laughs> I got the same vibe that he was he was using it as pornography. <laughs> so, Daniel, I think your interpretation is not wrong exactly, but this is not the sort of thing that would get him prosecuted for, you know, performing the act against nature or whatever you would call this at the time um under uh, under now now obviated texas law because <laughs> texas law applies everywhere in the old west not just in texas texas is more of a concept than a physical location it's more of a state of mind than a functioning republic so read that i kept thinking so my i will say that i had one disappointment with this movie and only one and it was that at the very the first time that you meet um the father of george and phil I thought it was Robert Duvall, and that was disappointing for the following reason, because I thought that it was going to, like, echo Lonesome Dove, in which, like, spoiler alert, although seriously, it came out in the 90s, so if you haven't seen it, that's nobody's fault but your own, and seriously, see it immediately. It's the best made-for-TV movie ever made. There is a character who, in essence, dies because of a flesh wound, and it's Robert Duvall. And I was like, oh, that's such a neat echo! And then I think it was Keith Carradine, which is also kind of interesting, but... You have the cast slightly wrong there. Keith Carradine does appear in this film, but he is Governor Edward. Okay. Um, and we meet Mrs. Edward. And, and the governor and his wife show up at the same time as the two characters that are known only as Old Lady and Old Gent, uh, who are their parents. And that's Francis Conroy and Peter Carroll play those characters. Okay. But yeah, they, I, I did not have any specific reference tied to those actors either. They were kind of barely in the film. It's, it's very strange that they don't have names, <laughs> especially considering how important the circumstances of the Burbank's upbringing seems to be to what they've turned into. Yeah, no, I mean, I feel like it was kind of fascinating that, like, they didn't talk about their dad. It was the old lady and Bronco Henry. You know, read into that whatever you will. Yeah, I mean, I got a bit of an old-timey, like, Gilded Age aristocrat vibe from them, but they also seemed way too poor for that, and it seemed like maybe these two, the, the two brothers Burbank, who got this cattle ranch fortune, they were the first ones to be rich in the within this family. And it also seemed like they were constantly trying to impress the old lady and the old gent as well. Mm -hmm. so, so there was there was definitely a bit of like, oh, they've been separated from their parents for a long time, and they want them to see how successful they are, but whatever undercurrent was there, it's never really spelled out. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Well, uh, Daniel, any, uh, any other thoughts about this movie that you 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 disliked this movie way more than I did? I did not find it quite to be to be quite as unpleasant as that. And the, the third act largely kind of worked for me. But was there anything redeemable at this film for you? Benedict Cumberbatch is a pretty uh, the batch. Come on, you all want you both want to do it. I can tell. I will say that Phil Burbank is a good asshole character. Benedict uh, Cumberbatch plays that character well. I, I, the, the performances in the film are fun. I think Kirsten Dunst does a really good job as an alcoholic who can't play the piano. 
And instead of just telling Phil to fuck off when he mocks her, she is just drinks more. That was fine. I think Peter Gordon, I was afraid for all the other animals on the farm, including the dog, that he was going to murder them because he's a creepy little bastard. I think he nailed that vibe. Honestly, I've been sick of gay characters and queer characters as tragedy. Gay marriage has been legal for six years. Let's see some uplifting, happy gay couples. I don't need to see these stories where they're sad and depressed and about to kill themselves. Kind of over it. And the animal violence, I, I really hate it. So that got, that's kind of where my take is. And I, I also saw the ending coming. As soon as they introduced Anthrax in the, in the uh, beginning and introduced Peter Gordon's character, and his first line in the film is, I, I would do anything to keep my mother happy or so, something like that. It was clear he was going to make Phil pay for making his mother sad. Um, well, that answers my other question, which was to what extent do you uh, do, do you blame uh, Phil for Rose's unhappiness? And it sounds like you completely blame blame him for that. I mean, he certainly but, doesn't help. I mean, George isn't George isn't a great guy. Like he's fine. <laughs> like he's trying to he's trying to like move on and build a future for himself, but he doesn't do it the right way. This is kind of how I. Uh, this is kind of where I think the movie let this character down because Kirsten Dunst, I think, did a fine job here as this secret brooding alcoholic character. But I just I needed more. And I know it's something the actress is capable of delivering because I've seen her delivered in other films. So I did not really see into this character's inner life at all. She was kind of just there as a device to be an object of marriage. Um, and. To the extent, I mean, we we see some nice romantic moments between her and her actual fiance Jesse Plemons on screen in this film, and some of those shots are very, are quite lovely. And we also we also get to see those scenes through Peter's eyes, which is interesting because we could easily have taken this as um, this is almost almost an edible kind of affection for his mother that he doesn't want to give her up for any man. But I think the movie takes a pretty clear position that he he is okay with george he is okay with george with his mom being happy with george but he's only okay if his mom is happy so his beef is specifically with phil um where i took it a step further was was i thought phil was actually planning on murdering peter so that introduces an interesting moral dimension of to what extent is peter aware of those plans and and to what extent does that make what he ends up doing justifiable homicide in some way um it sounds like you guys did not take those dimensions into what he did he was just murdering a guy who who made his mom sad but uh but that that layer of it was at least present for me in, in, in interpreting the final moments. So, mm. but maybe he also. I mean, that's definitely you know true that you know he was just trying to protect his mom. Um, maybe it was also just like kind of related to, you know, when they're you know doing that like bet thing with like you know the trapped rabbit and like trying to like make the rabbit leave and you know they end up like breaking the rabbit's leg. Uh, Phil says, "Well, we should like put him out of its put him out of its misery." I mean, maybe in fact by that point, Peter just kind of understood that Phil was like a deeply miserable person, and he thought he would put him out of his misery. So maybe there's that too, because a doctor oh, a doctor could is also trained to do that, or can be, especially in so, the old west. I mean, he. He certainly succumbed quickly to anthrax, but uh, the idea that Peter was euthanizing Phil is a very interesting interpretation. I, I don't really disagree with that. Like, he didn't seem to have any strong feeling about about murdering this guy, <laughs> uh, even after it had happened. But, uh, Daniel, I'm curious. Uh, we, we've we've seen Benedict Cumberbatch play many capable assholes. Um, 
But I, I am curious how you would compare this performance to that of Richard Burton in Look Back in Anger, a film that we reviewed earlier, a 1959 film, um, which features a character that is basically is in the cusp of post-war Britain, and he is highly educated, but there's basically no, th- there's essentially no economic prospect for him as an educated man, and he's working basically as a as a seller in a marketplace, and he kind of thinks it's beneath him, thinks his family's beneath him, wastes no opportunity to berate his family for how thoroughly his entire life has disappointed him. But Richard Burton is is charming, and even as he's berating other characters, I still found myself somewhat interested in this performance because I just wanted to see what what this actor could bring next to it. And that is not a feeling I ever experienced while watching this performance from from Benedict Cumberbatch. I thought it was a good performance, but it's a character whose demons are all entirely self-created. And all he has to do is just try to move on from them. And he never tries and he never changes. Yeah. Richard Burton's character in in A Look Back in Anger at least has a catharsis at the end where he realizes just how big of an asshole he's been and tries to reconcile with his wife. Uh, And Phil here is just an asshole the whole time to everybody, including his brother. Uh, He's so miserable in his lot in life. You know, oh, Bronco Henry this and Bronco Henry that. there, There was no charisma to the character per se like the, they mention that his character is extremely educated but we don't really see that right aside from him being able to whistle music i guess uh <laughs> I, it's, we say that he's an exceptionally good banjo player but he only uses it for evil all of his talents right he uses I, it in richard burton's way. character was was funny in his insults because they were extremely mean but they were extre- extremely well constructed insults uh, and meanwhile, you know, Bert, you know, Phil here is just a jerk, and I don't, yeah, I, I didn't really see any upside to the character. Yeah, and a character who's an unpleasant jerk can be an interesting subject for a movie. But I need somebody, I need somebody whose emotional journey I actually care about, and that can be the jerk, but it has to be somebody. I don't know. I, I feel like I just ended up feeling more sorry for Phil than anything else because he's clearly just lived a really you know, he didn't ask to be born at the time that he was born. He didn't ask, you know, to have, you know, feelings that he couldn't like express publicly. You know, he felt that he needed to kind of like prop himself up in various ways. And in the end, this kind of like arrogant rage, you know, ends up getting him killed, you know, because he ends up maligning a character for being more open about like being different and being okay with it in a way that he can't be. So um, I don't, I can understand how that would make for a really unpleasant, uh, rage-filled individual. And yeah, I ended up just feeling a lot of pity for him because it's a story that I can't even think of the people throughout the years that have had to just kind of live like that. And it would it would warp you. To what extent do you, and either of you can speak to this, to what extent do you feel like this is a character who has some relevance in 2021? In other words, is a character who is intensely concerned with the with their own tropes of masculinity and want, wishes to inflict those tropes upon everyone they meet until they drive all of them away or drive themselves into an early grave? I don't know, I'm almost talking myself into this now, because it seems like we just keep making the same mistakes as a society over and over again, even after the... Uh, like you can at least understand how notions of 
quote-unquote traditional family and traditional gender roles came about in an organic sort of way as a result of humanity's desire to survive and thrive and procreate and spread across the land, in many cases reinforced for transparently economic reasons. Like, all of that is very complicated and has no singular cause in our history, and anybody trying to sum it up is doing so for their own twisted purposes generally now. But it seems fair to say that humanity is is okay on the population side, is okay on the material survival side, to the extent that we have the quote-unquote luxury to accept people as they are and allow them to live whatever life they wish to live for themselves, we could simply do that now. And all of our demons in this area are now wholly self-created, i.e. a certain subset of famous people's desire to announce their disdain for trans people any fucking chance they get. So, as a character study of this type of person... I think this movie has some relevance because this type of person very much still exists. Big of a reach there, pal. Are you saying you that Phil Burbank is Joe Rogan? Is that what you're saying? Uh, or Joe Rowling? You know, it could be uh, could, could be anybody who who feels the need, who thinks the world would be better off if everybody just thought the way they did about sex and gender, and if everybody would just act in a way that they approve. Everybody of, has that opinion. It, everybody has that opinion. I don't know about everybody having that opinion, but I think we also forget, Glenn, that like, you know, although I don't necessarily think of the United States as like as utopian as I'm apparently supposed to, you know, there are still plenty of places in the world where you can very much still be killed for being gay. So it's not necessarily just that it's 2021. It's that, you know, there are this is something and, you know, there's even I mean, there's people in, in, you know, in this country itself who, you know, still cannot come out to their families. So it certainly isn't across the board. I, I did not mean to imply that these issues are absent in 2021. I, I, I honestly wanted to offer a counterweight to what Daniel said a moment ago, um, that gay marriage has been legal for six years. And as it follows from that, we should be able to see stories in which LGBT folks are being used for stories that are not either as a punchline or as tragedy. and. That's a point that I have agreed with before now up until this this point. I'm just saying what I want to see. I think it is important to remark upon what a short amount of time that is. I mean, we had a character in Bruised just now refer to her wife and her kid and getting divorced and the wife took the kid away. And that being the most normal thing in the world is a single digit number of years old. We've only moved into this area of, of even understanding or accepting people in different sex and gender roles than we have become accustomed to both in our media and in our popular culture in really the last couple of decades. So I don't know. This movie still didn't work for me largely, but I think that the movie still has a has a role to play. Um, I think the story is still uh, still has some relevance in, uh, in this year is all my is all I'm saying. I couldn't agree more. The more I think about it, the more I'm like, yeah, it it, it, it was disturbing but beautiful and i mean have you ever seen blood on wheat look any prettier and i know the answer is no <laughs> blood on wheat that is very specific and, and it, it seems to evoke cain and abel in a different way yeah like, it does uh, i don't know it's... no the asshole murdered a rabbit that's what happened <laughs> yep, don't try what, to beautify blood comes from <laughs> <laughs> don't beautify the moment he murdered a rabbit for no reason and then he looked him in the, and then peter looked uh phil in the eye and he's like i'm dangerous too i go like blah 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 i don't care i don't want to see it it's a garbage film well daniel i will try to find more westerns about two men and the friendship that they forge with a cow um, you, you have failed every western you pick fails that. here's the western <laughs> i want i want there are going to be stupid shootouts, and I want to be like, these are the people we sent to, to occupy the West and expel all the natives because they're all morons. 
that's what I want to see. If you haven't seen Lonesome Dove, that you might really enjoy it. It might even be on, like, Netflix. I feel like it's actually really mainstream. I mean, it's like it was a Larry McMurtry adaptation that's really faithful to the book. Um my parents, I believe, owned the doubleheader VHS of it at one time, but I, I, I've never seen it myself. It's I I really recommend it actually to a lot of people because it's 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 really good. It's just like you know, it's Tommy Lee Jones and Robert Duvall are like leading this cattle drive from Texas to Montana, and it's just sweeping and like um, Angelica Houston. That it's just it's so well cast. It's so good, and like you cry, and Danny Glover's in it, and I can't I can't say enough about it. It's a really excellent western. That's yeah, it really it just is. So I, I will say this. I I can't speak to Lonesome Dove. I will definitely take that recommendation uh, under advisement. If you find that it's streaming anywhere, let me know because it's a it's a it's a series that I have at least heard my parents and others rave about in the past. Um, but the Western genre, I'm also I'm also happy to see expand in time so that it's not just about people in California or Texas with guns during the California gold rush. Like we're you know, we're expanding it clear to like nineteen twenty five in Montana now. Mm. Yeah, because we're telling well, some of these kind of lesser known stories because we've been engaging in a cultural circle jerk on the Western genre for the past and t- the past century. Well, and it's still, it's still the Western times in Montana. Have you been there? Like, there aren't roads. They just, they ride horses and they shoot each other. That's Montana. I keep telling you I've been to Wyoming and you, you refuse to acknowledge Wyoming that is not a real place. That's Utah you went to. There's no state perfectly square. It's a conspiracy for senators. Well, folks, any final thoughts about the film? When they were bringing in Rose's piano, I honestly thought it was initially a casket. And it kind of turned I out. I thought that too. too. And, yes. Yeah. And yeah, I was broke. I was brokenhearted. We didn't get to hear more about like why she could no longer play piano, like other than just something to do with the movies. Or is it a wider comment on women in Hollywood? I don't know. I wanted more. So the movie worked in spite of the lack of depth on Rose, I suppose, because of the depth on Phil. Is that basically what I, what I can take your opinion as? <sighs> See, the thing is, I still feel like you even without hearing about why she was unable to play piano, I mean, that actually would be a pretty significant thing. You know, music is something that you do, you know, that scientists have found that the reason that birds sing, the nearest we can tell, is because they enjoy it. And humans are the same way with music. We do it because we enjoy it. It, like, appeals to something in us. So I would have wanted to have known why, and I don't think it was her husband's suicide. That being said, I still... I could buy it enough, you know, that she's just a woman in the West, you know, doing what she could that apparently, like, fortunately didn't have to, like, resort to prostitution. And just, you know, she clearly had some some sad stuff going on. And I feel like I got enough of a picture of it to watch her go from, you know, this woman kind of making it on her own to being kind of like a kept woman and it not being actually that great because your brother-in-law is tormenting your kid. I don't know. It wasn't really that hard to extrapolate, like, why she was unhappy. Daniel, any final thoughts about the film? Well, I think the scenery was nice. Honestly, like, my dislike is just my personal dislike of films like this. So it's, take it with a grain of salt. Like, if, it, if you like westerns uh, or if you like, you know, Mr. Mr. Cumberbatch, uh, check it out. But personally, I hate it. But that's just, that's just me. Yeah, this film... If you are up for some some lush cinematography and you are up for a, for a, a performance that is deeply unpleasant, you might find something to enjoy here. Um, the third act largely did work for me, and I found a lot of a lot of importance in the story it was trying to tell. But I think, um, by and large, it's a miss for me as well. 
so uh, yeah. Well, folks, uh, thank you for joining me this week. Erica, thank you so much for coming back. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. And Daniel, thank you. I'm sorry we had two movies that you despised this week. But... <laughs> I, I despise Bruce. I just didn't think it was very good. I, I, I appreciated Halle Berry's effort. I, I dislike this film. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the Power of the Dog. Because once again, you've picked a movie with a misleading title. The Dog Had No Power. So you wanted a you wanted a movie about dogs taking over the old west, okay? Okay, like first cow. You you, you you sell me on first cow. We're talking about the first cow in Oregon territory. I'm excited. We're gonna learn about this cow, and it's barely about the cow. And I'm like, I the cow didn't show up until the first thirty minutes of the film. I'm like, where's the cow? I don't care about these stupid trappers. I want the cow. And once the again, the cow was beautiful. Though. It was a beautiful cow. The cow's barely in the film. Has no lines of dialogue. I I couldn't. I didn't <laughs> understand the character, you know, direction for the cow. And I wanted more. In this film, I was expecting the dog to have more of a center role, and the dog had no no center role. Stop picking movies with misleading titles. You know what the Fast and the Furious does well? They tell me exactly what to expect on the movie title. Fast 9, ninth, ninth movie in Fast the Fast and, and Furious, Furious series. I know what to expect. Well, uh, that brings us to the end of our discussion of The Power of the Dog. If you have any feedback, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. Thank you for tuning in at filmwonk.net and have a good night. Ain't no half stepping, all I do is break records.